Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles again today to Acts chapter 19 as we continue our series in Acts. Helps if I turn my microphone on, doesn't it? Makes a big difference. Is that better, Dennis? All right. So, uh, again, we're turning to Acts chapter 19. Uh, We're continuing in our Impact World series. And as we do this, we're encountering uh, Paul returning to Ephesus as he's in his third missionary journey now. I'll be reading... Uh, the first, really the first half of the chapter, the first 22 verses. Luke writes, While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva A Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high, in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Father, as we open your word, we recognize that there are so many competing voices in our lives, so many distractions we recognize that the that the enemy seeks to discourage us and distract us and deceive us and father we recognize that we've been complicit in his attempts to do so as we have chosen so many things over you we've chosen our way over your way so regularly we do get caught up in the flesh lord We confess our sins to you now. We don't want anything that is not from your hand. Remove from us the desire for earthly things. Fill us, consume us with a desire for you. Above all else, that all things here 
might be blessings from you that bring honor and glory to your name as we enjoy them as your gifts. Lord, remind us as we go through your word today that this is your word. Protect us from the opinions of humans, including your vessel today. Allow, Father, your servant to speak beyond my ability. I pray that your spirit would move in a way that my faltering tongue cannot. We give all glory and all honor to you, Lord, as we seek your face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I don't know about you, but this time of year is really rough for me with allergies. And I end up with a lot of sinus issues as the weather changes. Raise your hand if you've ever had sinus issues. You get those headaches, right? Okay, it, it can be rough. I've discovered over the years, and perhaps you have as well, that, uh, that Sudafed has been very helpful with that. However, a number of years ago, when... Uh, when the pseudoephedrine that was used to make Sudafed became very popular among meth producers to, to make methamphetamines, they restricted access to that. So now you can only get that, that actual Sudafed, the real pseudoephedrine, from the pharmacist. You can't get it just off the shelf anymore. They've come up with uh, what Sudafed markets as Sudafed PE or or. I always get the store brand, so it's uh, decongestant, sinus decongestant PE. It's a fake Sudafed. It's, it's a substitute, an imitation, and it does not work nearly as well, right? So I have to go to the pharmacy to get the, the real deal. So many things in life offer the promises of results, but if you don't get the real deal... If you get a cheap imitation, you will never get the same results as the real thing. Today, our core reality as we work through this text is that there is no substitute for a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I, I wrestled with how to say this all week long. The, the, the point of the passage became very clear very quickly. How to say it was difficult. Until God kind of smacked me in the head and said, stop making it complicated. It's straightforward. There is nothing else. All power and life come through Jesus Christ. He is the giver of life, the source of power. There is no substitute for a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what we see happening in this passage. There is the real deal which Paul and the disciples experience because they know Jesus. They've built their life on Him. They have died to themselves. They've received Christ. And in receiving Christ, the gift of life that He offers brings them into full adoption as God's children. As God's children, they are able with authority to live on behalf of their Father, to invoke the name of Jesus with real authority. So much so that we see bizarre things happening. Can we just acknowledge there's some bizarre things in the Bible and in the book of Acts? Like when Paul lays hands on them and all of a sudden they start speaking in languages they don't understand and speaking prophecy, revealing God's word from their mouths. That, that's that's a powerful thing. It's kind of bizarre. Most of us, and I can say this with the authority of Scripture because Paul himself says this later on to the Corinthian church, most of us don't speak in tongues and prophesy when we receive Christ. That's not normal for most people. But it does happen here, just as it happened in Acts chapter 2. We see God move in unusual ways in specific times for His specific purpose. But it gets weirder, though. It gets weirder. It feels like a televangelist moment, for those of you who remember Oral Roberts doing something similar to this back in the 80s. Paul 
is walking so powerfully with Christ that even handkerchiefs and cloths that touch him are given to sick people and they're healed. And demons flee because of Paul's handkerchief. That's not normal, right? That is not typical. We see a similar thing happen with Peter when Peter's shadow falls on people and they are healed. But that is not normative in Scripture, nor is it normative for us. You are not going to give your old you know, handkerchief or your, your face covering to someone and they're going to get healed. They might get sick from your germs. Don't do that. It's gross. But what Paul does is different. Now, it doesn't say that Paul is, is promoting this, but people are doing it. Why? That's the question we have to always ask when we're reading the Scriptures. Why does it say what it says? Why does it say it here? Why does it say it this way? What is the purpose? What is the context? What is Luke, as he records the story of the book of Acts, what is he trying to tell his readers? And through this, what is the Lord trying to tell us today? What appears to be clear as this keeps popping out from the Scripture, there's a repeated theme in this passage. That's our core reality. There is no substitute for a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Why does Paul have the power he has? Because of his personal connection to Jesus. Paul in himself has zero power. He goes on and on in his letters about that, even saying everything that, that I had in the flesh, my great education, my great background, all of these things, I consider that rubbish, garbage, dung, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. There is nothing like knowing Jesus. Why do demons flee from things that are connected with Paul? Because Paul's connected with Jesus. And he's so closely in tune with Jesus that, if you will, the demons can smell the Jesus on Paul, right? Now, if I go into someone's house, I was at Gary and Laura's house not too long ago, and when I got home, my dogs immediately flocked to my jeans because they could smell their dog on my legs, right? I couldn't smell it. I couldn't tell the difference, but they knew. When we have the aroma, the scent of Christ on us because we have been rubbing up against Him, we've been connected with Him closely. Others can smell that aroma. Chuck Swindoll calls that the aroma of grace. When demons recognize the presence of the real thing, they flee. But we also see in this passage what happens when they sense a cheap imitation. We need to recognize as we are walking through our Christian life that far too often we have tried to substitute a cheap imitation for the real deal of walking with Christ. As we get into this today, I want to just start by clarifying what it means to be in Christ. Because this is a concept that is so rooted in the New Testament. It, it, the, the, the Scripture is so replete with this idea of being in Christ. We better know what it means. Because it doesn't mean being in church, right? You're, many of you are sitting here, well, not that many, are sitting with me here in church today. Some of you are watching online. But watching online or being present in the building does not mean you are following Christ. At home I have a Cubs jersey. I have a, a Bears jersey. But I do not belong to either one of those teams. I have attended ball games. But they don't let me get down on the field. They don't let me get close to the personnel. Why? Because no matter how much I might talk about it, I'm not one of them. People will flock to a press conference to hear President Trump speak, whether they love him or hate him. They show up. They're going to come. But if I announce today that I'm going to have a press conference on behalf of President Trump, how many people do you think are going to show up? 
Why? I'm not his spokesperson. Nobody cares what I think. So CNN, Fox News, all those people, they get my memo that I'm going to have a press conference on behalf of President Trump and they're going to throw it in the trash. What do they care? If Kaylee McEnany does, she says we're going to have a press conference, they show up. She has a relationship with President Trump that I don't have. Her word counts. When Paul speaks on behalf of Christ... He has a relationship that the sons of Sceva don't have. His word counts. As we walk through this, what does it mean to be in Christ? There are some things that we need to to recognize. So if you are here today and you are not sure whether you belong to Jesus, whether you are saved, uh, maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not, I, I don't really know. I, I've gone to church my whole life. I, 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 you know, I say all the right things. I know these songs and hymns. When, when the band sings these old traditional hymns, I actually know the words. That, you know, that's, really, that's really something, but that something may not be the real thing. What does it mean to be in Christ? There are some things we have to do. First off, we have to recognize the gap. We have to recognize the gap between, that should be on your blanks, your first blanks on your page there. Recognize the gap between who God is and who I am. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God calls us to be holy. He called Israel to be holy. In Leviticus 20.26, He said, I've set you apart, called you out from the nations, that you should be mine. That's the logic that leads to the command, be holy, because I'm holy. The problem is, we're not. And when Isaiah encounters God in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, I, in the year that King Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord. He was high and lifted up, and, and His robe, the glory of God, filled the temple. And there are these burning angels flying back and forth in this vision of God through the temple, proclaiming His glory by saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's first reaction in understanding who God is is to recognize that there is a gap between who God is and what is demanded by an infinite and holy God and His own life. And he falls as if dead and says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And somehow my unholy eyes have beheld the Lord. We start by recognizing the gap. Secondly, once we recognize that gap, we have to change our way of thinking. We have to repent of sin. We have to repent of sin. The Lord says in Mark 1.15, Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. We have to turn from our way to God's way and accept the offer that He is giving us. That's the third part. We recognize the gap. We, we turn from our wickedness. We repent of sin And we receive the gift. Recognize the gap, repent of sin, receive the gift. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, right? But the best part is the second half of the verse. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you don't have that verse memorized, I'm going to challenge you to get it. It's not our memory verse for today, but get it in your heart. You've got to know this. We have to know this. The penalty, what our sin earns, our wage, what we deserve. Don't ever bring up what you deserve again. Because what we deserve is death, separation from God. Our our sin, which all of us have, separates us from God permanently. We can't fix it ourselves. It's not fixable. It's a debt we cannot pay. And yet the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Once we receive the gift, well, I should first say, how, how do we receive the gift? Romans, 8, uh, Romans 10 verses 8 through 10 says that, that the way we receive this gift of God is to confess with our mouths that Jesus is our Lord and to believe in our hearts that He is who He says He is, that He died and rose again. This is how we receive the gift, by believing and declaring it, going public with it. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. So we need to be very, very clear. It needs to be ours, we need to believe it, and it needs to be public, we need to confess it. Declaring with our mouths, with our lives, what is within. Which, by the way, is the purpose of baptism. It's that declaration that I once was dead in my sin and now by being buried with Christ I am dead to my sin. And I've been raised to a new resurrection life in Him with the power for the first time to actually live a life pleasing to God. Recognize the gap, repent of sin, receive the gift. And when we receive the gift, then the logical thing for us is to respond in obedience. Respond in in obedience. Paul, the guy that we're talking about here today, Paul says in Romans 12, 1, therefore in, in view of God's mercy, when we see all that God has done for us, when we have recognized the gap, repented, and, and received, the only logical, spiritual, reasonable act of worship we can possibly offer is our very lives. He died for us. All we can do logically is respond by living for Him. That's our act of gratitude. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love Me, keep My commands. If you love Me, do what I say. Don't say you love Me and then go off and do your own thing. Because it's a lie. You don't. That doesn't mean we won't stumble. In fact, Paul goes into great detail to, to make sure we all recognize that we all stumble in many ways. James says that. Paul says, even, even as he's writing Scripture, I, I keep trying to do the right thing, and yet I, I'm struggling because the sin still keeps nagging at me. I see what I should do, and I don't. And then there's, there's what I don't want to do, what I shouldn't do, and I keep ending up there. How does this happen? Praise God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we've got to be in Him by recognizing the gap, repenting of sin, receiving the gift, <clears throat> excuse me, responding in obedience. When we respond in obedience, we find ourselves in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. We recognize that as the Great Commission, where Jesus said, All authority in heaven on earth and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name, one God, three persons. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. See how it comes together? But if we're going to live in obedience, we're going to respond in obedience, then we need to do that. We need to be baptized. We need to spread the word. We need to teach others to do the same, and the cycle continues. That's how we respond in obedience. By responding in obedience, it brings us to the last portion of this, we reflect His reality. We reflect His reality. This is how we make disciples. But more than just that idea of we reflect His reality out of obedience, there is a very real sense in which that is who we are are we reflect his glory much like the face of moses reflected the glory of god when he came down off the mountain and so now we with unveiled faces reflect him more and more as we grow spiritually second corinthians five twenty says that we are christ's ambassadors that means we live here, but we, we belong to another kingdom. We are citizens, not primarily here. You may be a U.S. citizen or not, but we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. 
as ambassadors here in this world, we are to be a reflection of our sovereign king. Our lives demonstrate for those around us who he is. We live in obedience out of gratitude so that a watching world can look at us and point to him and say, whoa, hallelujah, what a savior. We reflect his reality by living like Christ. 1 John 2.6 tells us that anyone who claims to live in Christ, to, to be in Christ, must live as he lived. Walk as He walked. If we don't reflect Him, then we do not belong to Him. We need to recognize that. Again, this is not calling us to a legalistic type of perfection, but that we are being transformed. And like children reflect their parents, we reflect the God that we serve This is what it means to be in Christ. It means that our identity has changed. I'm going to have you turn, if you would, to John. If you're in Acts, turn back to the left to the book of John. We're going to look specifically at John 3. And then we're going to jump to Ephesians chapter 3 right after that. There's a reason for this. John, of all the Gospels, focuses most specifically on the identity of Christ as both divine and human. John was his best friend on earth from a human perspective. He was, of all the people on the planet, closest to Christ. Even among the twelve, even among the three special relationships among the twelve, there was John. It was John who at the cross, when Jesus was crucified, was given charge of his mother. When Jesus said to John, this is your mother, and to Mary, this is your son. That's a special kind of relationship. So John knew Jesus as a human better than anyone else. And yet it's John who more than anyone else focuses on the Identity of Jesus as God. I want you to see John 3, but just because I decided to, let's turn back to John 1. You can keep at John 3, we'll be back there. But this is how John starts his gospel. This is the beginning, the foundation for everything else he says after this. Starting with John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Speaking of John the Baptist, he then says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through Him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Say this next phrase with me. Children of God. Wow. Could there be anything more mind-blowing? Be honest. You know yourself. What part of you deserves for the holy God to call you His child? There's no part of me. My very best. The very best I have is like filthy rags. One laid before God. But in Christ, He makes us His children. This is the power of real life in Christ. This is the point of the passage we see in Acts 19. With that, turn to John 3. 
Jesus is meeting with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And in, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 3, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, Nicodemus is blown away. What, what are you talking about, Jesus? Now, he should have gotten this because this wasn't a new idea, but he didn't get it. Surely they can't enter into their mother's womb a second time. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you don't understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen, still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe it if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except, the one, except for the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, referring to His crucifixion, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. Now comes a familiar passage, but don't let it be so familiar that you miss it. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Turn to Ephesians Moving to the right, a few books. They're smaller books, but we're going to get past Acts and Romans, past the Corinthian letters, past Galatians, and then hit the brakes, and we'll stop in Ephesians. I want so much to read you the entire, <laughs> the entire book of Ephesians. In fact, I, I said Ephesians 3. I'm going to have you back up to Ephesians 1, and we'll focus there for a minute. give you just a moment the reason i want us to see ephesians 3 notice paul is in ephesus in chapter 19 of the book of acts paul is writing this letter that we have traditionally called the letter to the ephesians Uh, many scholars think it may not actually be to the ephesians it feels a little different than writing to a group of people he spent two years with and also some of the earliest manuscripts don't have the word in ephesus in there uh, the phrase in ephesus But that doesn't really matter. What we do see here that does matter is that everything Paul says, whether it's to Ephesus specifically or to all of us as Christ followers, what he says here is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 19. That there is no substitute, none whatsoever, for a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians... It's significant that it's the first three chapters. This follows Paul's pattern in writing letters, by the way. Indicate who we are in Christ. If you have received Him, then the things that are written in Ephesians 1 through 3 are true of you. And if those things are true of you, then chapters 4 through 6 tell you what to do about it, how to act on it, how to reflect the reality of Christ through your relationships. But the first three chapters talk about our position, our new identity, who we are when we are in Christ. 
Let's start with Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Stop there. First thing you need to recognize is if you are in Christ, He has declared you to be holy and blameless by His own design. He chose you to be that. Not because you have worked your way toward it, but because He has said, you are my child, you are holy and blameless. Excuse me. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we are also chosen. We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything, in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Jump to chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying, <clears throat> excuse me, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. In tra- transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Hmm. Jump to... Chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Man. Could there possibly be any substitute for a relationship with Christ? Paul writes this way not because he's been convinced that there is a a good philosophy, a good path that he should choose. Now, he was a zealous, passionate person when he was living as a Pharisee, but he was changed by the reality of Christ. Not only the reality of Christ as an entity, as a person, 
but the reality of Christ in his life so that Paul died to himself. That's what he says in Galatians 2.20. I no longer live. I've been crucified with Christ. Now it's Christ living in me. Anything good you see from me is Him. And yet, here in Acts chapter 19, we see folks missing the mark. Now that's sad for them, but what's sad to me is how often we who claim to be His also miss the mark. We live in a society where people have a form of godliness. They have religion, but lacking power because they've got all the stuff. They do the things. They have their social justice, but they miss the relationship that gives it life. Our memory verse for today is from 1 John 5.12. The same John we read earlier it said whoever has the son has life whoever does not have the son of god does not have life it doesn't get much more straightforward than that if you are in christ you need to guard yourself against imitations If you are not in Christ, you need the real thing and you need to guard yourself against imitations. Excuse me. Turn back to Acts chapter 19. While you do that, I will slake my thirst. Once the throat turns to cotton, then the sermon's over, I guess. No, there's more for us to talk about. Here in Acts chapter 19, we see three common imitations. Notice the very first, we see repentance without relationship. Repentance without relationship. The problem with this is that it's incomplete. Repentance without relationship is incomplete. Notice what happens at the beginning. Now, you may remember that Apollos was there teaching in Ephesus, a very gifted preacher. And as he was preaching, he was preaching the repentance baptism, the baptism of John. But he didn't have the fullness of the gospel, so Priscilla and Aquila educated him. And and as they taught him a fuller way, the fullness of the gospel, he went to the region of Achaia, to Corinth, to preach. Paul gets to Ephesus in his return here. And he finds some disciples in in verse 1 of chapter 19. And in verse 2, he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I think the reason he's asking this is because if you didn't receive the Holy Spirit, then you didn't really believe. I don't think that he means, did you speak in tongues? I don't think he means, did you prophesy? But the Holy Spirit in every case comes with power, the power to live for God. And there's a gifting that comes with that. And whether your gifting is speaking in tongues or gifts of discernment or prophecy, any number of gifts that God gives you, the one thing that we know always comes with the Holy Spirit is the power to repent, the power to live for Him. So he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit marking and sealing you? Now, we don't see the mark, we don't see the seal, but we know When we are able to live for Him, that doesn't come from our flesh. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? Now, perhaps these are folks who were saved uh, separately from the group and hadn't really heard it. Maybe they're folks who, who, as they uh, were coming to faith, had heard about Jesus, but they hadn't received the gospel yet. So they thought they were believers, but they were not. Maybe they received this from from Apollos' teaching early in his ministry and they hadn't heard the fullness of the gospel yet in any case they seem to think they know jesus they have a belief they have repented it says here that they received john's baptism in verse three 
And Paul points out John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So they have repented. They have turned from living their way to living God's way. I take it if they're following John's repentance, baptism, that they have turned to a complete dedication to living according to the law. Because John was an Old Testament prophet, though we read his story in the New. John was the last of the prophets pointing to Christ. He was the one who was preparing the way pointing folks to Christ. And as he's doing this, before Jesus shows up and makes himself known, John is calling them to repent, which means stop sinning and start keeping the law. And yet, we read over and over again that keeping the law doesn't give life. Paul says you're not justified by the law. Even the Old Testament itself says the righteous will live by faith. The just will live by faith. So what's going on here? Why? Why is this incomplete? Because it brings them to the precipice, to the brink. They're standing on the edge of the pool, but they haven't jumped in yet. And Paul is saying, listen, if you're going to be in Christ, if you're going to know life, if you're going to be saved... Stop standing on the edge of the pool. You got your water wings on, but you're not swimming yet. Jump in. So they jump in. Once he explains to them that John himself was saying, look, repentance is is the key. However, there's one coming after me who's greater than I. He's the one you follow. All of the Gospels give us this picture. John points to Christ. If we repent, but we don't enter the relationship, then it's incomplete. We have part of the gospel. That's how we end up with legalistic cults. That's how we end up with Christians who go to church and they live a moral life. They found a form of righteousness in obeying the law, in doing the right thing, but they don't have life. The vibrance and power isn't there because they haven't completed it it's a false labor i'm in labor i'm having all the pains but no delivery and i need to be born when they receive this they're baptized they give themselves to christ they are identified with him repentance without relationship is incomplete notice then we see following this that religion without relationship is another imitation that we find. In in, uh, verse 8 and following, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. There are already believers here in Ephesus. He's got some who have converted. But while he's there, some of the folks in in, uh, the synagogue, presumably Jews, perhaps as well Greeks who, uh, who are still holding to Old Testament rather than than receiving Christ, they became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So they're religious. They've got all of the trappings of God, but they're not listening to what God is telling them. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him. They had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks, everybody there who lived in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. Religion without relationship is a problem because it is insufficient. It's insufficient. It's not good enough. It's not good enough to go to the synagogue and do all the right things and look the part and wear all the prayer tassels and and keep all the law. It's not good enough to go through the exercises of Christianity. It's not good enough to come to church even to go to real life even to go to a Bible study on Wednesday night. It's not good enough to pray before your meals and, 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 and be religious if you don't have a relationship with Christ. So many people in our world who call themselves Christians, I won't have you, but many of you could raise your hand and say, yeah, that was me have been religious. They grew up in Sunday school. They knew all the things to say. Maybe they went to a catechism or were confirmed. Maybe they they would go through all of the, the steps. They were baptized. 
They got their picture taken, had perfect attendance, all these things. But didn't have a relationship with Jesus. That doesn't go far enough. It's insufficient. Lastly, we see ritual without relationship. Ritual without relationship. If we have ritual without relationship, it's invalid. The ritual means nothing. And it's even insulting. Not only is it invalid, it's actually insulting to God. Take a look at what we see here in... Uh, oops, I'm in the wrong chapter here. Let me look again. Verse 13 and following... Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. We see movies and stuff about exorcisms and things like that. There are lots of folks in a variety of denominational backgrounds who teach or preach or talk about exorcisms and casting out demons and so on. And if you say the right things and if you pray the right prayers, maybe if you bring a cross or some holy water, then you have power over demons. Jesus and Paul both warned against that. Don't rejoice. Don't boast that you have power over the demons. That's what Jesus told the, told the disciples. But rejoice that your names are written in the, book, in the book of life in heaven. That's where you should rejoice. It's the relationship that matters. If you don't have the relationship, then all the exorcism principles and tactics in the world mean nothing When you pray in Jesus' name, what you are saying is that I belong to Him, I am praying on His behalf because I represent Him and I am surrendered to Him. Therefore, I want what He wants. But if you don't know Him, that's like me showing up to to Bear's training camp and saying, hey, I'm here with the team. No, you're not. No, no, I really. I'm here in the name of the coach, Matt Nagy. Well, where's your ID badge? Well, I, I don't have one. Well, what's your relationship to coach? Well, I, I've never met him, actually. You don't get to come in. You can't be here. You can go over there. You can be in the stands. You can watch. But you don't get to be here unless you are authorized by the relationship. And when you show up and pretend through your ritualistic prayers, maybe it's praying the rosary or or just the common table prayers that we do when we pray before our meals and we say the same things like a ritual as if God is pleased because we've memorized some words. Not only is it invalid, it is actually insulting. In, in uh, Amos 5.21, the Lord spoke to His people and said, I, I hate your festivals and your offerings. Your worship stinks like death to me. It's an insult when we go through the ritual without the relationship. The devil scoffs at that by the way. He just laughs. I see so many people on Facebook and things with their, not today, Satan. Yeah, it's not today, Satan's great if Jesus is saying it. But if you think that you have some kind of power over the devil because you put a meme on Facebook, you don't know what you're talking about. The only power we have is in our relationship. All power and real life come from Jesus Christ. If I don't know Him, I can't fake it before those who do. And the devil, if nothing else, he may not have a loving relationship with Him, but he knows who Jesus is. Just like my dog can smell peanut on my pant leg, The devil knows when you show up with ritual instead of relationship. Notice what happens. Somebody should turn this into a gospel movie here. 
these, <laughs> these Jews are trying to invoke the name uh, of the Lord Jesus over those who are demon-possessed. But notice, they don't, even, they, they don't even get it. They're saying it as they're saying it based on Paul's relationship. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out until a demon calls their bluff. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this, probably getting paid, going around, gaining some notoriety, like the televangelist, if you send some money and I'll give you a healing. I'm I'm going to stop there. One day the evil spirit answered them, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus I know. Paul I've heard of, who are you? Who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. One dude, seven seven people claiming to have power without authority. Claiming in their ritual without relationship some sort of power over these evil spirits. And one man, empowered by the devil beat them all so badly that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. If you're going to go into battle, you better make sure the general knows who you are. If you're going to live in this world and invoke the name of Christ, you better have a relationship. Jesus better not be looking at you saying, I never knew you. Lord, wait, I went to church. I got the real life t-shirt. I bought the something real podcast mug. I gave to missionaries. I served as a cleaner. I worked in the nursery. But if you don't have a relationship with him, if you haven't recognized the gap between yourself and God and repented of your sin, received His gift of life, responding in obedience so that you reflect His reality before a watching world, then just like this demon says to these fakers, when you get to the door of heaven, the Lord of all creation, the giver of life, will say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. I never knew you. There is no substitute for a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. May each of us here today repent of any imitation that we've bought into. Let's pray. Father in heaven, There is so much for us to wrestle with. Not not complicated things, Lord, but but places that we've just allowed the world, the flesh, the devil to keep us from You. We've filled our spiritual belly with junk food. And we've sacrificed the real meat the real food that You give us in Your Word. We have striven so often to look the part, to sound the part, when what we really needed was to be on our face before You, authentically, honestly pouring our guts out so that we could be honest with our Daddy that we don't deserve the gift of life And yet You have so generously given it. Father, teach us (laughs) that we don't need any kind of assurance or confidence that comes from our own flesh, from feeling good about ourselves. We need to know the truth so that Your truth might set us free. We want life. We want You We want Jesus in this glorious relationship that can never be undone. 
Grant us this grace, Father. Thank you for your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You know, um, every month we set aside time to do what Jesus commanded. We respond in obedience by participating in what I call the remembrance celebration. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion. It all refers to the same thing. It's that ancient ritual. Yeah, ritual based in a relationship that Jesus gave to the disciples that has been practiced throughout the ages by all who claim Christ. That we would participate in this ceremony to recalibrate our minds, to focus ourselves on the cross, to recognize that the price of our freedom was paid by Jesus. There is no substitute. Our life came through His death. And His resurrection gives us the power by the Holy Spirit to live for God. A life of obedience. A new life. With power. I'm going to invite you, we're going to do this as we have been since the pandemic, rather than having our overseers or ushers come forward and pass things out. I'm going to give you a moment or two. We've got stations at each of these windows on the side.